Welcome to Encounters with Success, the podcast about the people who made something from nothing, with your host, Richard Dyson. Today we're talking to a hotelier, a property investor, philanthropist, and much more. He's a startup king, having built hugely successful hospitality businesses, a sports brand, consultancies, and a number of not-for-profit organizations. He's best known for starting from scratch in the 1980s, some of the most successful and fashionable hotels in London, including the Grange St. Paul's and Tower Bridge. Despite the pandemic that's wreaked such havoc in the sector, he's continuing with fresh hotel projects, including the iconic Transport for London building in St. James's Park. Our guest is Tony Mathery. Welcome to the show, Tony. Thank you, and thanks for the opportunity. Let's start by going back to your early life. You've, you've spoken in the past about the importance of your mum, for example. Can you, you tell us a bit about your childhood, about her and her influence? Yes, well, thank you for that, and thank you for that introduction. Uh, my mother um, is, was a great influence, is, and still maintains a great influence. I think everybody is a product of their um, domestic and other environment. Um, and she had the energy and the ambition um, for um, myself as a, a young man, um, and, and even beyond that, um, the drive, the strength, the encouragement, um, and I think probably most of all, setting values that um, are at the heart of my business now and, and I've developed over the years. Um, she's a very strong woman. Um, my father died when I was still at school, um, so we had to make it on our own, and, um, and, and she certainly um, was the initiator and has been a, a constant uh, a form of strength for me throughout my career. Did she, was she working then? Was she supporting you as a family? Well, no, um, but um, it's true to say that the seed capital for um, uh, our business at the very start came from her. Um, and she cashed in her pension at an early age um, when she could have been taking a certain sum for, for weeks for the rest of her life and, uh, uh, and handed it to us in, in order to try and um, create a business, which, uh, it, of course, it flourished. But it wouldn't have started at all if it wasn't for her and her ambition for us. So the, so the seed capital and the drive came from her. How did, talk us through how that ended up in hotels. What was it about, what was it about the hotel industry that was the draw? Uh, I think it was probably my naivety um, and thinking that uh, the hotel industry was glamorous. Uh, and I thought it was something that we could be successful in without really knowing very much about it. So I think... I think that, that naivety may have been a, a, a strength because we weren't coloured by other people's views on, on what was a rapidly changing world. Um, so it, no, it, there, w there was no great um, strategic plan, um, but it, it seemed to us at that time that the hospitality industry was something that we had seen others be successful in from, from a, a, a standing start. We thought we could probably mim mimic that. But, but naive or otherwise, you, you obviously came onto something or stumbled onto something that made a difference and made your businesses um, stand out and succeed. What was that? I, I, I'm not sure if we, we stumbled onto it, but um, the, the reality is that people who um, identify opportunities and have the breadth of vision to, um, to recognise them and then to make the sacrifices in, in following um, their instincts generally are more successful than those that are narrow-visioned and don't recognise those opportunities. So I, um, uh, I think that was the case in the, in the hospitality business when we started it, and the hotel world in particular. Um, there was a lot of um, stale uh, bedstock in London and other capital cities. 
um, that were, had been created for a different age, um, for a different kind of traveller. And we identified um, a niche that hadn't been properly satisfied, particularly the growing business sector market. Um, and in responding to that need, I think we were ahead of the game. Um, so I think that it, it came by, by witnessing what was already there in the marketplace and not being conditioned by um, the, the more traditional um, nostalgic forms of, of hotel and hospitality um, and actually just responding to the changing market need and identifying that niche in, in London in particular. So it sounds like huge amounts of learning and, and watching competition in those early years then. Uh, absolutely. Well. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, if, if you don't know um, the market and you're not able to um, follow patterns that have been already established and then, and then spot those opportunities, um, you have to pick it up very quickly. Um, and sometimes I think if you aren't narrow-minded uh, and conditioned by other people um, in, in more traditional um, uh, vision, um, you can look at life through a different lens. And I think we did that. Um, the, the, the market was changing when we uh, uh, initially entered it. And um, we were able to recognize that change, particularly uh, when, when people were um, able to book independently in the booking and um, distribution mechanisms changed. The corporate market grew. The method of uh, mandating travel and so on um, from corporate programs was evolving and we were um, in, in the forefront of that. In fact, I sort of assisted with part of that. And were you, t and, and presumably, you can't get into this industry without significant risk. Were you taking, were you risking that capital from your, your mum right from the start? Absolutely. Uh, there, there was no fallback position. Um, and um, yeah, it was, it was in, to some extent, it was risking everything. But then if you are young and energetic and ambitious um, and it all fails in two or three years, um, you've learned in the school of hard knocks and you can pick it up again. I think it's rather riskier in some senses when you've developed a very substantial business, you've got lots of lives and livelihoods dependent on you, lots of employees, you've invested 15, 20, maybe longer um, in terms of numbers of years in building a business. Um, uh, then I think there's a different level of risk. Um, but um, when you start with nothing, you can only lose very little. Um, when you've grown a business and, and you're responsible for many other people, um, then I think there's a, a different type of risk. Um, the numbers get bigger um, and um, you, you perhaps have more to lose. Um, uh, it, you look at life slightly differently then. Do you want to, uh, I mean, that's extremely interesting and, and covers quite a, a bit of time, I guess. Can you just sketch out how rapid, you know, the growth of the business was in those decades? Yeah, it wasn't rapid. Uh, yes, yeah, so it, wasn't, it wasn't rapid. Uh, I mean, we grew a business from nothing into a business that was worth um, well over one and a half billion pounds. Um, so I guess that's significant in sort of value terms, but it, it's taken over 30 years to do that. Um, and it wasn't... By, um, by any sort of aggressive, um, um, very risky activity. It was considered and measured and evolved over time, um, exploiting opportunities um, uh, as they presented themselves, learning, um, and by careful uh, acquisition. And then, and then I think we, you know, we refined my skills into identifying um, sites with potential, perhaps those that have come to the end of their useful lives in another form, uh, and um, and the, the skill set to be able to design, build, as well as operate and manage. Uh, and my, my skills at the um, at the outset were were operating and managing hotels, uh, and then evolved into um, into being able to create uh, those businesses that we thought that the market demanded. 
rather than um, starting off in from a sort of property side uh, on design and build and then trying to understand what the purpose was. It actually started from the other uh, from the other side, operations, trying to understand what the market needed uh, and responding to those needs by um, by developing um, sites that um, that could lend their their potential to that. So, so it was always driven from knowing the product and the services that people wanted, rather than from a kind of property speculation approach. Yes, yeah, exactly that. Um, um, and um, you know, identifying demand and then satisfying it is you know, probably a common factor in a, a lot of successful businesses. But during the, that decade, lots of other external factors were changing, and London was, was growing in importance as a financial centre. What what are, what were some of those external factors that helped or changed or hindered your plans and success? Well, the growth of the corporate market and business travel um, was, uh, I think, a key, and and being able to identify that uh, and then respond to that. Um, you know, the early days you're probably too young to remember, but the early days of um, of business travel and how it was transacted. Um, and, the, and the forms of that um, and the way in which hotel inventory was uh, distributed uh, were very different in a, in a pre-internet, pre-email world. Um, and um, as the corporate and business travel market um, started to grow, um, as London's um, financial centre became more prominent, um, as uh, travel became easier and, um, and cheaper, um, we responded to that need. So I think the growing, um, the growing importance of London um, as um, a global world-leading city, not just for financial services, but also for culture and arts and entertainment and events. Uh, and, um, and, and that grew the general demand for hotels and hospitality. And the quality of, of service and provision grew and improved as a result of that. And I think we, we probably led some of that. Um, and when, as I said, not conditioned by having to um, deal with old buildings built for a different time and different client base. But there, as you rightly say, were challenges. There were, you know, I think at least three different recessions. Um, those cycles are unhelpful. The early 90s, where, where interest rates were extremely high and banks and financial institutions were the bigger, biggest owners of hotels, having repossessed many of them. Mm. Uh, those were uncomfortable situations. But... Um, Again, I, I go back to try to understand customer demand and responding to that need um, and having a, a, a keen eye on, um, on how that uh, booking and distribution process um, uh, could be captured efficiently and effectively. And I think that was the, um, that, that distinguished us as a, um, apart from some other people in the industry. Thanks. We'll come back in a, in a moment to, to uh, a bit more about London. But... Just give us a, a flavour, if you can, of your own style. This you've described decades of of growth and expansion and of building up a team. What is your? How naturally and easily did that come to you? Your your role as a leader, as somebody who inspired confidence in their team. You've spoken about a sense of responsibility toward employees. Are you a very detail-oriented person and hands-on? Yes, I think probably one of, one, yes, one of the things that hindered my, my progress, I think, was because I was perhaps too hands-on and, um, and, and didn't delegate responsibly um, early enough in my career. But I learned that. I don't think it just sort of comes. Um, 
I think leadership came um, naturally to me and, and always has done from school days onwards. And I think having some core values that I, we, I mentioned my mother, but um, uh, those that you can always go back to when, when um, challenging times occur, if you can always go back to those core values and have the confidence that um, you know, integrity and respect and, uh, and, and a degree of humility um, being um, uh, being embedded in the community, which, uh, however you see that, um, uh, developing people in partnership and collaboration, including your you know, key members of your team, um, and being seen to lead from the front, um, um, engaging and empowering others. Those are all things that, um, I, that came fairly naturally to me um, and um, have enabled me to survive when others perhaps have had um, different kind of challenges. Um, I can't say I've always got things right, and certainly I've made mistakes, but... Um, um, it, it, they, they've helped those. those I, if you go back to those values whenever you're challenged, uh, that's always a good start. And right now, there are huge challenges facing businesses. The global pandemic and uh, has uh, affected every every business, um, and you know, mostly negatively. And it's shown, you know, that uh, we are all interrelated and interconnected in a way that perhaps we didn't realise. And the effects of a pandemic, along with other challenges, will be what we talk about in part two of the show. Let's hop to where we are today now in a in a unique. Uh, crisis, I guess you'd call it. Uh, you sold the Grange business in 2019, which looking back was probably a propitious time because no one saw what 2020 was going to bring. Um, but you still have prestigious London hotels uh, and you've kept them open. Can you tell us, give us, a, give us a sense of how your business is being impacted now? Well, it's being impacted by a number of external factors. Um, the, the global pandemic and, uh, has uh, affected every, every business, um, and you know, mostly negatively, um, all over the world. And it's shown you know, that uh, we are all interrelated and interconnected in a way that perhaps we didn't realise um, or didn't realise sufficiently um, previously. So um, COVID-19 um, has been a fundamental issue that... Um, is, uh, has come up, um, about at a time when the world seems to be ill at ease anyway, um, where harmony and collective decision-making, and particularly in a, in a pre- and, um, and uh, post-Brexit world, um, should be more uh, essential than ever. But um, what, what um, the pandemic and COVID-19 has re-emphasised is that um, security is the most critical thing for individuals and uh, collectives and, and nations and countries and sovereign states. Um, the World uh, Travel and Tourism Council have always said that security, whether it's the fear of terrorism, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's um, a natural disaster or war, um, security is the, the, the most important thing. In fact, now we individually are, are, are discovering that. And our health and welfare and our security is the most important thing. Um, so uh, this has been a reminder to us as in, in our industry, um, which is probably most affected by um, insecurity than many other businesses. Um, but um, and, and you know, we are having to um, to refocus our businesses um, uh, for this new world. But it wouldn't have been the first time when there have been bombs going off in, in London, um, when there have been disruptions 
um, when economic security has, has been um, challenged. Um, we've found a way through. Um, and that, that's one issue. Um, I think um, a, a sort of separate issue is, um, is the bre uh, an, an unhelpful Brexit um, uh, at a time when you know, the great powers should be coming together um, in, in better union. They seem to be more divided. Um, there, there are some disruptors. Um, migration um, seems to be, and po other populist issues seem to be uh, at the forefront of people's minds when, when we should be perhaps joining hands together if we can. The uh, UN seems to be hamstrung, the World um, uh, Trade Organization partly paralyzed, the World Health, World Health Organization is, um, is short of funds, trillions of dollars have been diverted to different things. This is all unhelpful for um, business and, and a stable world economy. Um, so, you know, th those things are, are um, challenges um, that go beyond perhaps just um, uh, the, the initial um, COVID-19 aftermath um, and provide a wider context um, of, of challenge. But, um, you know, we can't be complacent or nostalgic. Um, you know, that, they're typically um, the roots for national decline. Um, and um, I think as a nation uh, and, and more particularly our business has... Um, in the hospitality sector has always been pretty resilient and proven resilient and um, and able to adapt and um, uh, and change as demand changes and the, these are definitely challenges on on all businesses and um, and the hospitality business and sector in, in particular I mean that you've given a hugely interesting uh, answer there touching on in on a large number of topics and extremely interesting just going back to a couple of points um, I think listeners who are not uh, involved in hospitality might be interested in your singling out security. Uh, so are, are you saying around that, that it's the processes and procedures around the response to the crisis, which for, for the hotel business is very like previous crises that might involve physical threats or so on? Is, is, that, the, is that the comparison there? Yeah, I think we need to be we need to be aware of threat. And, um, and sometimes we do get complacent and we aren't aware of it. Um, uh, or, or aren't sufficiently aware of it. Um, and uh, I, th I think there are two issues in, in the United Kingdom and in, in other countries. And there's the pandemic itself, and, um, and then there's a response to it. Um, and um, I think it, it's, it was a learning curve um, that um, whilst pan pandemics were, were identified as a serious global threat to every nation state and economy, um, the, the world didn't um, take note and, um, and, and parts of Asia um, were much more cognizant of that and responded much better. Um, in, in Europe and in the UK in particular, we didn't respond as quickly and, um, and as appropriately as we might have done. Um, the, when, when the World Health Organization said that we must test, test, test in February, um, you know, one could argue that we're not, you know, we're only now just getting to a stage where we're doing that to some effective degree uh, and and it's december and a lot has happened a lot of, a lot of people's lives and livelihoods have, have suffered and been lost as a result of that so i i i, I do say that security uh, is an issue and we must now not forget um that um the trouble is that we can sometimes fall um in into this sort of complacent attitude that it, um that happens actually um with in in uh, with all crises Something comes along, um, whether it be a tsunami or an earthquake um, or a, um, a man-made disaster or war, 
um, and it and it presents challenges, um, and we respond to it. Or, or, firstly, we might go into denial and say it's all too big and it's all too bad and it's over there and it's not here. Um, and then we, you know, there is a tendency to hibernate um, and just, you know, put our heads down and say, but it's not really going to affect us. And you know, we, if we if we close our eyes, it will go away. Um, uh, other people might get busy and um, feel empowered and want to do things. Um, uh, the next stage beyond that it will be is a period of adjustment uh, and then recovery. And it doesn't matter whether it's a natural disaster um, or if it's a, um, a, a crisis um, brought upon about by you know, some economic challenge or, or other disaster. Uh, those those are things that typically happen. Those are phases that happen. Um, and our, you know, the, our country and our industry uh, need now to um, uh, to adjust. Uh, appropriately to be uh, to place ourselves in a better position um, and to be aware that these things might happen again in the future uh, and and you know, the uncertainty on, and the, the impact on our health the market volatility the changes in risk the impact on our, our you know, on our businesses our employees our customers um, you know those are all things that happen um, not just as a result of a um, a pandemic crisis but actually you could apply those to um, uh, the impact of a Brexit and uncertainty and market volatility and impacts and, and, on, and so on, changes Just, in, in, in um, regulatory uh, um, and other matters, um, you know, those are, those are common things. I understand your, I understand the, 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 your points there, but just trying to separate those for a moment, um, assuming we have a relatively, some form of recovery from the pandemic, that's that's hopefully fairly speedy. The other problems that you've highlighted, such as Brexit and the movement of populations and, and other bigger, perhaps longer term factors, um, do you see those? Do you see your industry or the hotel business as being some kind of barometer of the success of nations in terms of their global trade and movement of people and, and business from one country to another? And is that a different type of threat that we're now facing? Yes, I don't want to get too political about it, but I, I, I'm, I'm not sure that we're a barometer, but I'd say that the hospitality sector, particularly in London, and London itself, is a shop window for the UK. Um, uh, the rest of the UK does well if London does well. Uh, and I, I know whilst I respect the levelling up agenda, frankly, if it means levelling down London, that's not good. Um, if, uh, and, and so what, what I would say um, is that the world sees us and um, through the London lens uh, and how London performs and how we um, as um, uh, politically and economically, culturally and in other ways, if we, we, have, we our soft power has enabled us to punch above our weight uh, and have hefty inter international influence and uh, in, 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 um, for a relatively small nation um, and to be that bridge between Europe and America um, and, and so on, uh, you know, perhaps a um, a, a, um, a nation that's being able to be cohesive and, um, and to work with lots of nations, um, enable um, them to trade um, and, um, and to build trust with each other. Mm. Um, those, are, those are things that are, are fundamental to our being in the United Kingdom, and that's what, what encourages people to want to live, work, visit, invest uh, here. Um, and we must be very cognizant of that and not put those at risk. Um, I think an isolationist kind of um, world, uh, building 
um, bridges, um, sorry, building walls, not bridges, is, is not going to no. be a good thing for us. And so the hospitality sector has a, has a role to play in. But how will businesses react? And there's no point in, in this, in the, in, as a phrase of, uh, that I've often heard about pushing water up a hill. Um, and, um, and they're trying to continue to do that when, when you know that the trend is, uh, is changing. Hospitality and other business sectors will, will change. And that's what we will be discussing in part three, along with the outlook for tourism generally and for London and the UK in particular. Your, your career has spanned a period of enormously growing travel, mobility, the enjoyment of, and necessity of travel around business and leisure. Uh, pandemic over and done with, what, what do you see as the long-term trends in, in people's willingness and enjoyment of travel? Uh, I think we'll see very shortly um, that there is an enormous suppressed demand for people to want to travel uh, and to learn um, and um, to do business face to face with each other. And that will uh, continue. Uh, I, I, you know, whilst we are on a call, uh, and not sitting here in a studio looking at each other. Um, and technology is enabling us to make better connections in, in many ways and to reach farther and deeper um, than uh, would have been the case before it. it technology is an enabler. Um, and I, I'm certain that people will want to continue to fly. Um, people will want to continue to meet and um, engage with each other directly. Um, and the hospitality sector has a role to play in that. Will they do it differently? Well, it may be that that there is some structural change which it, you know which we are which we we need to um, confront. Some people might say that the retail sector has been complacent and was relying on old forms of retail um, and on high streets and in big department stores um, and um, and and didn't adapt to a digital world. And the online um, retailers have uh, have managed to. Uh, identify um, that demand and respond to it in a, in a better way than the more traditional forms of retail. But there's been decline for a period of time, uh, and um, and there's no point in in this in the, as a phrase of uh, that I've often heard about pushing water up a hill, um, and um, you know trying to continue to do that when when you know that the trend is uh, is changing. Hospitality and other business sectors will will change. But I think that is not a dangerous thing for the for for um, the hospitality sector. We we typically are quite good at, at utilising technology uh, and um, enabling um, it to uh, uh, um, support a greater distribution, to reach further, um, to market our products and services in a way that we probably didn't do before. And means of travel may change, cities may change, but long term um, the. Um, the spirit of humanity to learn and to um, and to connect with other people. Um, I, I think COVID-19 has perhaps emphasised that rather than detracted from it. We realise now that we're all, all interconnected and interrelated, uh, and we're connecting with people in in, in a much deeper way than um, than perhaps we had done before. So, so although you although you've highlighted concerns, you're broadly very optimistic. Fair. I am, um, but we can't be complacent. You know that London, in particular, and capital cities, they need support. Um, there's no point in, 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 in you know, we've we borrowed trillions of, uh, of pounds and dollars 
Um, it, you know, the, whether you take the Bank of England's suggestion that our economy has shrunk by 11% or 11.2% from the Office of Budget Responsibility, um, who also say that there's an added 2% um, shrinkage as a result of the Brexit effect. You know, the, these are big numbers that... Um, and we do not want to be fundamentally degraded uh, or permanently scarred from this. Um, I think there are ways in which we can recover uh, and, re and but the first thing is we've got to survive uh, and, and our political masters have got to understand that uh, and support the industries and sectors where um, uh, they're being most impacted um, because um, all, all of our systems are, are interrelated and, in, and, and reliant on each other. They're, even London as a great world city um, has an ecosystem um, and when you're, whether you're working the financial sector and coming into the big glass towers in the city, um, you still have, need a cobbler, a coffee bar, uh, a, hair, a hairdresser, a dry cleaner, uh, places to meet and drink and to entertain, theatres uh, and arts and cultural mm -hmm. activities that add to uh, the rich tapestry of life that make London the best place to live, work and visit. And, and if we don't respect all each of those elements, um, I think that we uh, do so uh, dangerously. So um, if, we, if we are going to have London continue to punch above its weight uh, and be the centre for financial services and the best place um, for the cultural and arts sector in the world, then we, ne we need to respond to that and, um, and not um, think that uh, by levelling up other parts of the country, um, we, we need to somehow impair London. Um, that would be... Um, in my view, a very dangerous thing to do. I mean, your, you, you, your confidence in London is, is really apparent. I just want to ask briefly about the um, Transport for London building that you bought for £120 million at the end of 2019. For those of you who haven't seen it or don't know it, it's absolutely iconic, huge uh, 1920s Art Deco uh, building. <clears throat> it was named the first skyscraper of London. Um, Tony, what are your plans for it, and and uh, are you feeling now about it as you did when you bought it? Yes, you don't you don't buy buildings of that nature or invest those sums of money. Um, and I'm not going to confirm that that number, but it was at least that number. Um, you don't do that for short term motives. Um, you'd be foolhardy to do so. Um, uh, so you, you think medium and long term. Um, if you're going to buy an iconic building um, in, in that in, uh, over £120 million pounds and know, know that you've got to invest a large sum in it, um, you've got to feel confident that there is going to be demand for the services and facilities that you're going to provide. Um, in terms of what um, I have already achieved in terms of planning, um, I, I, I have now planning permission for 526 bedrooms and suites, a very large conference and event centre, um, together with a, um, a whole range of retail and food and beverage and other opportunities and spas and gyms and, and so on. So I want to create a, um, uh, an iconic new London hotel to meet um, the needs of the 21st century. Um, uh, as I say, I'm, I'm confident in London and uh, I'm confident in other people's um, affection for it. and. Uh, and if we can design and build uh, facilities and services which um, that respond to that um, demand and that need, um, then I would have been, um, my, my optimism would have been proven um, correct and uh, validated. But um, 
I have uh, I have fondness for the building. It's a wonderful building. I've, I, I've, I've worked in and around Victoria and St James Park for a number of years. Um, and uh, a grade one listed building, um, it, it's quite a magnificent, um, uh, iconic place to um, where I'm now, I'm now working in. But what advice does Tony have for others building businesses in the hospitality sector and more generally? The advice I'd give, you need to be open-minded and to be able to recognise opportunities when they come along, whatever you are currently doing. And that's what we will be discussing now in the final part of the show. I want to move on to for the for the last stage of our conversation to talk a bit more about you, the person, and uh, you, you've given us uh, a sense of of your values. What what do you think is the force that drives you? Uh, you've described how you were watching football on Boxing Day in two thousand and four when the news came through of the tsunami, uh, and as a result, you've established a you established a channel. Which is, which is still going to this day. You're clearly, clearly somebody who gets things done. What, what, what lies at the heart of that driving force? Um, I think that's right. And I, I, I tend to be a doer, um, albeit it may be in a measured and considered way rather than just sort of spontaneous and emotional. Uh, I'm sort of reminded of Edmund Burke, who said that nobody made a greater mistake than he who did nothing because he could only do a little. And my, my view on life is to try and do something, even if it is a little. Um, and in terms of sort of the philanthropic and giving of my time, um, no, nobody has ever um, become poor by giving. And I, I think that there's lots of things personally uh, and um, collectively in the community um, that are to be gained from giving up of your time and, and effort. Uh, and and, and um, it, it generally is the case that... Um, when you do commit to um, responding to a public need or a local need, um, uh, there are benefits, some of them tangible, some of them not, that, um, that result from them, uh, that you didn't necessarily anticipate. Uh, I think that we've seen that within COVID-19, and, and it's not just clapping nurses, um, but there's a greater respect for those people in public service, um, and there's, uh, there's an increased need to try and um, support them uh, and value them and respect them in society. So it's not just me. I think it's public recognition that... Um, that um, if you can do something and if you can help somebody else um, and give a bit of time and, uh, and effort um, for those that need it or are vulnerable, um, then that's generally a good thing. And, and actually doing good is good for business too in many instances. Um, what, I, what I find um, and sort of reminded of, of Martin Luther King's statement that the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but uh, where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. So when um, things are controversial or, or challenging, um, I tend to stand up um, and see who's going to stand with me and try and respond to that need. And, um, you know, the, the, what I've done in, in London during a time when people were locking down and closing up and I was trying to see whether or not there are the vulnerable and others that needed assistance, that would, that's typically what I would do. And it seems to come naturally to me. Uh, I, I don't think it's it's come from anything else than perhaps um, uh, through the values I, I, I shall demonstrated to my mother um, and um, where you know she, she sort of instilled a, a suggestion that um, uh, if you can uh, do something every day for somebody else without any personal or, um, benefit or gain, then that's a good thing. Um, mm. and it becomes part of your spirit. Um, and, and you talk about being measured and considered, but actually you also 
continually taking big risks. Is that a kind of conflict? Um, uh, we discussed risk and the nature of risk um, and, uh, earlier. And you know, when, when, I, when I was young and starting off in the business, uh, as I said, you know, if it had all fallen flat, mm. I would I'd have been I'd have learned a little bit, and I'd still have many years um, um, to go to progress. Yeah. I think rather older now, um, and with children and other responsibilities, the nature of risk has changed, and my mm. and my level of responsibility to my family and and others around me is is on a on a different um, uh, part of the spectrum. But um, uh, I I think that. The way in which um, you have an appetite for risk might change, and the way in which you respond to risk might change. And I've never been afraid of challenges, not not when I started off and not now. Um, and and to be measured and considered doesn't necessarily mean that you're not competitive and uh -huh. you don't challenge yourself and you don't um, want to exploit opportunities that you are confident that you can um, take on. Um, uh, whilst it is the case that I could sit back and um, and have an easier life, um, uh, it, you know, it's, I think it's rather early for me to sit back and retire. Um, mm. You're a long-term retired. I, I remember, you know, former international sports stars saying. Uh, and it, it, interesting talking about this shift of risk. Then from from and its relation to age, there'll be people listening who are at various stages of founding or starting businesses of their own. Um, looking back, is there any standout advice that you would give to, to those at the early stages where perhaps financial risk is more appropriate or certain types of risk are? Um, I think very generally the, the advice I'd give is um, for anybody wanting to start a business to be open-minded. Um, you know, there is a tendency, um, uh, particularly among certain communities, to um, follow professional lines, become a doctor, dentist, lawyer, accountant, pharmacist, engineer, um, and, and to have a narrow scope of vision because you've started on a path. And when opportunities come along, um, perhaps they aren't recognized. And I think that's the first thing. You need to be open-minded and to be able to recognize opportunities when they come along, whatever you are currently doing. Um, the second thing is equally important of that very small percentage of people that recognize opportunities because they are open-minded and have the broad enough vision um, to uh, understand patterns and where there are opportunities within those patterns. Um, the, the second element is, is sacrificing, and that often means uh, personal investment. It often means time. Uh, there are opportunity costs of both of those, of your, your funds and your time, and uh, you may have to move. Um, nothing comes of any great um, benefit without a degree of sacrifice. And I think those two things have to be borne in mind. You're, you're not going to achieve success in anything you do without having the breadth of vision to be able to recognize opportunities, nor to make sacrifices um, and to be able to assess those, whether the sacrifice and the benefit of those actually fit within your life pattern um, and something within your capability. So those are very general um, responses that I, I would give. Thank you. Um, and lastly, Tony, uh, a thread that's run through all of your responses is, is your sense of values and, and the idea that um, doing, thing for other, doing things for other people, uh, your, your, your colleagues, teams, uh, and, and much more widely, 
is a big source of personal fulfillment for you. Can you can you lastly just say how uh, and perhaps why those values have made you a successful businessman? Well, I think I mean I've, I've talked. We've talked about challenges and where where we're exposed to risk, um, and um, and I think that if you if you have strong values that and you trust in yourself and uh, and those around you, then that's always a good place to go back to. And, and if you if you trust yourself, uh, you earn and give respect to other people. Uh, you're humble and you develop strong partnerships and relationships. Um, if you um, you know feel um, that those sort of bonds of family and community, and you act with integrity, all of those things are values that um, you know are are your fibre and your spirit, and that you can rely upon uh, as you go through life, whatever the challenges that are um, are thrown at you. So that's always a good place to start, and um, uh, and I would say that uh, behind every successful organisation, um, you you need to have some common values that you can apply, and that other people can witness, and you can demonstrate, um, and that you um, can hold true to. Those those are um, those are important. Um, I think Warren Buffett said that um, when he looks to hire people, um, he looks for three qualities integrity, intelligence, and energy. Um, but if you don't have the first, which is integrity, um, the other two will kill you. So I, you know, even he was suggesting that it doesn't matter how bright you are, how much, how much energy you have, and even how many resources you have. But actually, uh, integrity, um, and honesty, and fairness in relationships actually is what's going to count most of all. Thanks so much for that. Fascinating. Um, Tony Matthew, it's, it's been inspiring, fascinating talking to you. Thanks so much for your time.